0: The following is brought to you by Michael Bolick, Joe Q. Carr, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics 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 Podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young joining you uh, a scant. Twenty days twenty days away from election day one. Alright, we got a we got a hell of a show here for you today. The Politics 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 Orphanage Alliance between myself and Andrew Heaton has indeed come to fruition and will be on display in this episode. Not only will you hear my thoughts on the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing, but also you will hear them with him, Andrew Heaton. Oh, I feel so bad. Oh my God, I feel so bad. I talked this man into driving across the country. So we could hang out together and do a bunch of podcasts and we could uh, uh, be here through the election. It would just be, uh, I mean, it's the closest I've come to having any kind of staff or coworker in many, many years, like physically, and uh, within 48 hours, he gets robbed. (laughs) Within 48 hours of being here, his car gets broken into and he gets a bunch of stuff stolen. Uh, uh, so, so, uh, just know that, know that he's a good lad though. You're going to enjoy him a little bit later and a just bonkers story about the mayor of Anchorage, Alaska, snow infects people's brains and makes them crazy. I will prove it to you with this story. And finally, an interview all about the Arizona Latino demo, something that's going to be very, very, very crucial as we get in to the micro communities that decide an election. Exactly how activated is the Latino community in various states that are swing states in this election, including Arizona and Florida? But also, is there a growing sentiment specifically among Latinos, as in uh, 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 men, for Trump in the same way that we've seen in Florida? We're going to have a great interview about that. But
1: first. (laughs)
0: You know, when Trump got COVID, a lot of people hit me up via text or Twitter or email and said, this is the October surprise, right? To which I said, no, it's not the October surprise because that's not what an October surprise is. It is a surprise that happened in October, no doubt. But the way in campaigns we have understood an October surprise, what it has often meant is old information that has been saved so it's popped at the exact right moment to maximize its damage. For example, In 2000, George W. Bush, uh, having uh, uh, been revealed to have once gotten a DUI, heretofore unknown in the public record. He was with some tennis star, I think, but it was when in in his wild days, before he settled down and married the librarian, you know, got off the sauce. That's an October surprise. Why? Because... If we find out about it in July, we sort through it by the time that it's ballot box time. But if you do it in mid to late October, let's say, for example, October 14th, then it might weigh more on your mind when you are making your decisions. All right, another preamble point. I said on this very show that should Joe Biden be the nominee for the Democratic Party, that the new version of Hillary Clinton's emails would be Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is a colorful character. He has done things that if your neighbor did them, you would gossip with your wife about. He has been involved overseas. That's something that that Trump has tried to hit on is is the the, the coziness between politicians and international interests, blah, 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 right? I thought it was a slam dunk that Hunter would be something that Trump would mention every other word. Now, that was before coronavirus. That was before COVID. So it is, I guess, understandable. At least I have a reason that, to, to explain why I was wrong. Because I I don't think Hunter's been mentioned a lot during this campaign until today. Yes. New York Post. Headline. A story by Emma Jo Morris and Gabrielle Fon Rouge. 5 a.m. East Coast time. Smoking gun email reveals how Hunter Biden introduced... Ukrainian businessman to VP dad. I will read for you the first couple paragraphs. Hunter Biden introduced his father, then Vice President Joe Biden, to a top executive at a Ukrainian energy firm less than a year before the elder Biden pressured government officials in Ukraine into firing a prosecutor who was investigating the company, according to emails obtained by The Post. Never before revealed uh, meetings is mentioned in a message of appreciation that Vadim Polharsky, an advisor to the board of Barisma, allegedly sent Hunter Biden on uh, April 17th, 2015, about a year after Hunter joined the Barisma board at a reported salary of $50,000 a month. Quote the email. Dear Hunter, thank you for inviting me to D.C. and giving me an opportunity to meet your father and spend some time together. It's. Really an honor and a pleasure. The email from May 2014 shows Posharski uh, reportedly Burisma's number three exec asking Hunter for, quote, advice how you can use your influence on the company's behalf. The blockbuster response. It's a bit of a, an explosive phrasing there which flies in the face of Joe Biden's claim that he's, quote, never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings is contained in a massive trove of data recovered from a laptop computer. Among that treasure trove is a 12-minute video that appears to show Hunter, who has admitted to struggling with addiction problems, smoking crack while engaged in a sex act with an unidentified woman, as well as numerous other sexually explicit images. The Post does uh, have a picture on this article of what very much looks to be Hunter Biden lying in bed, smoking a cigarette with two gold chains on. Uh, It is credited as photos from Hunter Biden's hard drive. Also credited as from Hunter Biden's hard drive is a a picture of Hunter Biden standing with uh, presumably members of the Biden family. I don't know how many are his kids here, but he has his arm around the Democratic nominee for president, his father, Joe Biden. So what does this mean? Well, before we attack the validity of this information, let us first recognize something. And that is the existence of raw information. And I'm using that very specifically. Raw information. We have an email. We have two pictures that the New York Post is saying Came from this hard drive. Now we don't even really have to believe. That they got the hard drive from the place they say. Which they do paint a very convoluted story. It was. On a laptop that was dropped off at a computer repair shop in Delaware. And. It, nobody ever came to pick it up. Eventually. Eventually. It went to the FBI, but not before it went to Rudy Giuliani and Rudy Giuliani was the guy who got it to the post. We'll get to that in a second, but you don't really even need to believe that. You could believe that this was given directly to the New York Post from the FBI, which I might find to be a little bit more believable. But they don't want to say that it's from the FBI, so they have to paint this ridiculous picture that I guess on some level the chain of custody is believable. You want to know why you don't have to believe that? Because you can attack or defend yourself based on the raw information. And I do mean that that goes both ways. You can say, I never sent that email, or that email was never sent, that email's fabricated. The pictures are a little harder. You would have to find where somebody got a picture of Hunter Biden. Not impossible, though. But at least now we're attacking evidence in comparison to an article that I spent a lot of time criticizing, and that was the Atlantic's article about Donald Trump's opinion of military people. And that was largely promoted by the idea that up in the lead, Donald Trump called military service people through World War I suckers and losers, according to four anonymous sources. This is a claim that was repeated both by Joe Biden on uh, or sorry, in his first debate and by Kamala Harris in her VP debate without attribution for the record, just stated as fact. That Donald Trump called military people suckers and losers. And again, does it make sense? Can I hear that coming out of Donald Trump's mouth? Sure. Is it a fact? Is it verifiable? Can you put somebody's name behind it at the very least? So now we can either uh, 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 attack or bolster their character. Is there raw evidence? No. I think this is an important distinction because for those that aren't just rooting for one team to get over the finish line, the truth should matter. And there is a practice by which we can break down and figure out how closely we can get to the truth. We don't always agree But at least there are best practices and the existence of this kind of data, data that we can attack or bolster is part of it. Now, let's get to something that I think is fairly ridiculous, as I hinted to before about exactly who knew about this hard drive and who knew about this information and for how long. Quote the post. The computer was dropped off at a repair shop in Biden's home state of Delaware on April 2019, according to the store's owner. The customer who brought in the water damaged MacBook Pro for repair never paid for the service or retrieved it uh, or a hard drive on it, which its contents were stored, according to the shop owner, who said he tried to repeatedly contact the client. The shop owner couldn't uh, positively identify the customer as Hunter Biden, but said that the laptop bore a sticker for the Beau Biden Foundation named after Hunter's late brother and former Delaware attorney general. Photos of a Delaware federal subpoena given to the Post show that both the computer and the hard drive were seized by the FBI in December after the shop's owner says he alerted the feds to their existence. But before Turning over the gear, the shop owner says he made a copy of the hard drive and later gave it to former Mayor Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, Robert Costello. Steve Bannon, the former advisor to President Trump and former sloppy Steve, although if this does become a scandal, maybe he will have cleaned up his act. Also somebody who's under federal indictment. Told the boast about the existence of the hard drive in late September And Giuliani provided the boast with a copy of it on Sunday. Now, here's what I have a hard time believing. That if this hard drive has existed in the wind for a year and a half, right? So it's dropped off on April 2019. Let's say it sits at the shop for a couple months and nobody comes in to pick it up. It's alerted to the FBI, let's say in November, December 2019, it is subpoenaed by the FBI in on December 17th, 2019, according to the subpoena that shows up in the Post article. That means that if all of this chain of custody is indeed correct and Rudy Giuliani's lawyer had this by early December, nearly a year ago, that means that we went through the entire impeachment situation. We went through Rudy Giuliani starting a podcast And we went through the vast majority of a a head-to-head election with Trump and Biden before this makes its way to the Post? And Bannon knew about it? Bannon knew about it? Bannon is the propaganda guy, right? He is the guy that explodes stories that stick to the right. So you're telling me? That those two knew about it? Those two? Rudy and Bannon. They knew about this and said nothing. For what? Campaign discipline? I don't know about that. Now, what is the political liability of a story like this? I don't think it's particularly much. Uh, in fact, the, the real issue interesting thing here is whether or not Biden is asked a question about it at his town hall that he is going to do tomorrow night, Thursday night. By the way, that will now officially be counter by a Trump town hall on NBC. Biden's will be on ABC. Will Biden be asked about it? And if he is asked about it, what will he be asked specifically? Well, I would guess it's probably something along these lines. Biden has repeatedly made it clear that he had no interaction with Hunter Biden's dealings in Ukraine. Now, there is a viral clip of Biden bragging to a, uh, a international relations council uh, telling a story that, He went into the Ukraine and and said that if you don't fire this prosecutor, that they're not going to get a loan guarantee from the United States. And the guy was fired. That fired prosecutor says that he was looking into Burisma. And so that is an example of corruption right there. There are many international relations sources that say that that prosecutor was corrupt. I am not an expert in Ukrainian corruption. So I will not be making any kind of hard and fast rulings on exactly who the goodies and who the baddies are in Ukraine. Indeed, I will just presume that they are all warring factions that, you know, this is more about mob turf than it is about righteous uh, commitment to democracy and a, a villainous kleptocracy. Here's all I know about Ukraine, is that the citizens there were so disgusted with their government, they elected an actor as their president. How distasteful. Come on, guys. Be adults and at least elect a game show host. Anyway, here's Joe Biden in his own words uh, discussing the ukraine situation uh,
1: get information about your son hunter and his dealings with ukraine and this process of impeachment has ensured that everyone knows about hunter's dealings with ukraine that's and a so- good
2: thing and no one's found anything wrong with his dealings with ukraine except they say it sets a bad image
1: well do you agree that it sets a bad yeah. image
2: and my son said that
1: do you think it was wrong for him to take that position no Knowing that it was really because but, but that it, company it, wanted access to you.
2: Well, that's not true. You're saying things you do not know what you're talking about. No one said that. Who said that? What,
1: don't Who you said think
0: that, that? Don't you think that it's. If you wanted to follow up on that now, you could say, well, the guy at Barisma said that he was thanking Hunter for access to you. So that's somebody who's saying it. And then, of course, there was this big moment on the campaign trail in Iowa when a question and answer uh, person, somebody in the audience, was just asking random questions to Joe Biden. Remember, there was a time, kids, uh, uh, ask your parents, but there was a time when Joe Biden actually just took non-vetted questions. Uh, they probably stopped it because things like this happened, but... This was the result of a question in Iowa about Hunter's dealings with Burisma in Ukraine.
1: Let's do push-ups together, man. Let's do, let's run. Let's do whatever you want to do.
2: Let's do number two, number two. No one has said my son has done anything wrong, and I did not on any occasion. And no one has ever said it. Not I didn't say
0: you were doing anything wrong. I you said,
2: said I set up my son to work in an oil company. Isn't that what you said? Get your words straight, Jack.
0: The most mild and fair version of this uh, question would be, did you ever meet with Vadim Pizarski of Burisma? And did you do so on behalf of your son? Did that meeting, if you wanted to follow up, did that meeting influence any policy? Would that policy have changed if your son was not on the board? I mean, those are fairly basic questions. And I think that you could get by if you're Joe Biden by just saying, I don't recall. I meet a lot of people. I met a lot of people while I was vice president and I don't recall meeting them. Uh, but every decision that was made based on our policy in, in Ukraine was uh, uh, not influenced in any meaningful way by Hunter it was something that was determined by the State Department and and a lot more data than just me getting word from my son. So that's that. And then from there, I, I don't think that there's much to go on. Uh, if you believe that Hunter's dealings were were you know kind of shady, then you're gonna believe that. If you're not, then you're not, and and that's that. Here's what I do think is kind of annoying is that apparently, you know, there is a a dialogue going on right now on social media that this is a story that should be curtailed. It should should stop from being spread. And I don't believe that. Like, at, at the very least, this has information. It has emails. It has pictures that it says came off this hard drive. So whether or not you believe that this is completely fabricated and that's where you would have to go to make this thing not travel at all on social media or, or or to curtail it then this is information that should be attacked you can attack information you don't have to censor it censoring it to me is where you get into into a real shady area and i i, I really don't like it i honestly think that it's damaging And I don't know where this story is going to go, but as of right now, and I'm recording this at around noon Pacific time, Twitter has now banned the link of this. You can't share it publicly. You can't open it on old tweets. And you can't share it privately on Twitter. Now, they have the ability to do whatever they want. And maybe this story is BS. Maybe there is... uh uh, enough to show that that this is faked or whatever at which point hunter biden would have a tremendous libel suit but to kill it now when it's just a sketchy story sketchy stories run all the time i mean man i i i just think it's bad i think it's a bad decision i think it's bad policy and if, if we're going to have a conversation about safe harbor, who, boy, does that seem to show editorial control when stories that have had less journalistic integrity, in my opinion, have run wild and free on that platform. I think it's damaging if you want Joe Biden to win. The idea of putting your head in the sand and pretending that these problems aren't there does not make your candidate better. It makes them weaker. Shouting nothing burger with your fingers in your ears is not a great tactic. And it's one that, that, I mean, Democrats specifically have used, I think, far too often. There is such a thing as damaging information. The thing you need to do is assess it and push forward on it. At least that's my opinion. Politics! All right. Calm down. Calm down, everybody. Yes. Here's a little weird palate cleanser for you. Headline in the New York Times, The Old Grey Lady, the paper of record. Anchorage mayor resigns after admitting to inappropriate relationship with tv anchor mayor ethan berkowitz apologizes for engaging in consensual and inappropriate messaging relationship with a local news anchor the resignation followed an unsubstantiated claim posted to social media on friday by the news anchor maria athens promising viewers an exclusive story set to air on upcoming newscasts Mr. Berkowitz responded by calling the allegation slanderous and false. Miss Athens shot back by posting what she said was an image of the mayor's bare backside with a laughing emoji. The anchor went on to claim that there were graphic photos of the mayor on quote, underage girls website, end quote. Yet after the bare backside image went live, political leaders in Anchorage lined up to defend Mr. Berkowitz until Mr. Berkowitz came clean. He and the anchor Miss Athens had previously engaged in a quote, consensual inappropriate messaging relationship. Quote, I'm embarrassed and ashamed for the hurt I've caused my family and our community. I take responsibility for my actions." Furthermore, it does seem like Miss Athens was pursuing a bit of a grudge. Indeed! Berkowitz, 58, turned over a voicemail that Athens sent him, in which Miss Athens can be heard in a furious rant making anti-Semitic references and saying that she would be exposing the mayor as a pedophile. Quote, I'm going to get an Emmy, so you either turn yourself in, kill yourself, or do what you need to do. Miss Athens said, according to the audio clip, she then said that she would personally kill him and his wife. Miss Athens, 41, is the main anchor for two outlets, KTBY and KYUR, which broadcasts online as Your Alaska Link In a unrelated incident, Miss Athens was arrested on Friday after a physical altercation with her boss at the news station, according to local news reports. This was not long after her video was posted to Facebook. Charged with misdemeanor assault criminal mischief and disorderly conduct and released over the weekend yet another reminder to all the px3 listenership as we approach the dreaded winter season that snow will rot your brain and make you crazy he is live here in oakland california he is indeed Andrew Heaton, how you doing, man? Hey. It's good to be in your studio. This is cool. I know. This is I I don't think well we definitely never we've never had a conversation in my in my no, studio. No, I right? see, I have
2: I've always previously been in Austin and you you beam in. Yeah.
0: and and operate from there. So this this is new for me.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know you're you're here. cuz here's the big problem with Austin and I don't want to speak ill of our our comrade Brian Brushwood, yeah. but there is a decisive lack of parrots at his facility. Yes. Whereas this one? I like Lousy I, with them. Two parrots is too few in my opinion. <laughs> Four parrots is too many. So like you're nailing We're it. Right yeah. We're right
0: there. We're right there in in the sweet spot. Uh well well welcome here and uh you uh, obviously are going to be here for the next few weeks mm-hmm. as we get to election day 1. Yes, I feel sir. like that's my branding. Election yeah. day 1. Uh, uh, that that's I, going I, to be honestly, November
2: I f- 3rd I feel like I'll be here at least for three or four days more than that because I don't think it's going to be wrapped up super neatly like I don't think that there's just going to be a memo that goes out that night of like hey such and such is president and like half the country's like well shucks better luck. better luck next time I think it'll I'll be here probably I imagine three or four
0: days beyond that I would suspect probably if even just for the hangover, mm. uh, but in what I described to the audience as a fist fight inside the eye of a hurricane, uh, (laughs) there is a Supreme court nomination hearing happening. Uh, it's odd as I was watching it today to, to even realize that like, Oh wait, there's not much of a fight here happening. Like every election in our lifetime Uh, For president, for sure, there has been the idea that, like, you got to got to vote for your side because the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court. And now the the most pointed that we got from Kamala Harris, who's the vice presidential nominee, also on the Senate Judiciary Committee that's holding this hearing, is that this is illegitimate, Hmm. not Roe versus Wade, which we've heard. Ad nauseum on, on both sides, hashtag both sides for every election I've been alive for. This is all about Roe versus Wade. This is all about this, this one moment in time. No, not that. It's health care and that this is either illegitimate or unconstitutional. I also heard today. What is your perspective?
2: Uh, OK, so it is hypocritical. They've got that. Yes. When, when Democrats yes. are saying this is hypocritical, they are spot on. It's absolutely hypocritical. My, yeah. Like One of my favorite Onion headlines from the last two years is when— uh, I think it was when Gorsuch, you know, it, when Gorsuch was put in or something, and it was just a picture of McConnell laughing, and it said, "Cackling McConnell reveals he's been working for the Republican Party the whole time." <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh wow, who'd have thought he was just doing it for a power grab? Yeah. So they're they're correct about that. It is not illegitimate, nor is it unconstitutional. And and I can further break that down. It's certainly not unconstitutional. Like you can constitutionally, the president can appoint in the Senate, uh, the Senate, uh. Confirms and and consents, right? Yeah, uh, and and that's being done. There's no timeline outlined by the Constitution. I I, I can't think of a single constitutional objection to it. Um, the only way you can really claim it's illegitimate is if you're just making a tot- a, a, a tautological argument that it's hypocritical, therefore it's illegitimate, which is what everybody seems to be doing. Uh, I like like I when I first saw headlines of illegitimacy, I thought that they were saying literally illegitimate this is not a real candidate they, they will not be a legitimately confirmed candidate. we will ignore and and the more I look into like the the comments from um, uh, the, the senator from Hawaii and Elizabeth Warren they're just saying I it's very hypocritical and therefore I do not feel that it is legitimate yeah uh, and that's that's fine fair. Uh, if 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 legitimacy means we're feelings towards hypocrisy, then yes, then it is illegitimate.
0: It also they really got old Lindsey Graham because Lindsey Graham had that uh, uh, that moment four years ago yeah. with, with Merrick Garland where, you know, uh, he's like, look, when's the last time this happened? When's the last time that that a Supreme Court justice died? Right before an election. <laughs> if this, if I i just got struck by lightning, if I get struck by lightning again, I'll give away my whole fortune, <laughs> right? And then lightning hits him again, and he's like, well, isn't this a pickle? No, I'm yeah. not giving you I all feel my like, money. Like,
2: that's like the last vestiges of it, of it. Like, that's either him playing the odds or just like, subconsciously forgetting that YouTube can be dredged up at any time. No,
0: that had to be the odds. It it had to be like, look, this won't happen again for another hundred years. Yeah. He's like, four years later. Ruth
2: Bader Ginsburg will outlive all of us. She's going to be tap dancing at a hundred.
0: Or at least, at least she'll die in a year. She'll die in two years. Yeah. Like she just can't die with, in a one year period. And as it turned out, it was like the most politically inexpedient for those comments that he made it, and I, it actually kind of bugs me because
2: graham was one of the last votes that i have seen in my lifetime of let's vote based on competency so i was on the hill when sotomayor was yeah. uh was confirmed to the senate or confirmed by the senate uh, i was in the house we couldn't vote on that clearly uh but uh but the senate was doing it and uh, a bunch of the republicans like my republican senator from oklahoma uh jim Inhofe. Uh, You know, immediately voted no, you know, all that kind of thing. Graham voted yes on Sotomayor. Yeah. And uh, and he was getting all this flack. And he's like, look, guys, like like his line, elections have consequences. Um, The president, whether you like it or not, is President Obama. He selected this person. It's our job as senators not to say whether we like this person or they would have been our pick. It's our job to say whether they're competent enough to hold the office of Supreme Court justice. Uh, sotomayor clearly is therefore I'm voting for her and i and I really respected that I thought it was a really good move so it saddens me that he's basically turned in that moral high ground by virtue of this clearly nakedly partisan power grab maneuver and i'll I'll further add to it that like, everybody's a hypocrite in this equation like it like because the democrats wanted to do this oh, yeah. with merrick garland oh, yeah, 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 and yeah. the republicans went you can't do that it's not that the democrats changed their opinion no and went, you're right we shouldn't do that they went oh you didn't let us do it and now you
0: did it and it's like yes you're all hypocrites all of you are hypocrites oh i mean as soon as i think i said this when we did our our uh, uh rbg death emergency pod No one's coming out clean on this. Like, nobody has the ironclad opinion that they're super pumped they had with Merrick Garland that now they get to trot out for Amy Coney Barrett. Everybody sold out for their position. And similarly, we're seeing that, like... The Obama administration didn't really play all that much a hardball with Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland was out there so they could say, hey, look, you're going to feel bad when Hillary Clinton comes in (laughs) or you're going to you're going to jam him through during the uh, uh, the the, the lame duck mini session that's going to happen because you're going to want you're going to want him then because you're not going to see what happens with with, with Hillary when she gets it. And I might let her, I might pull Merrick Garland back and, and, uh, and and just let her do stuff. But they didn't really say like, all right, Hey, look, we'll give you X, Y, Z. If you put, if you at least put it up to a vote, right? Whether or not Mitch McConnell would have done that, who knows, but, Cocaine Mitch is is known to wheel and deal. Yeah. He's going to need something that he can get back and show off, of course. And it seems like the the Democrats are similarly doing that now with Amy Coney Barrett, where it's like they feel that this is a glide path for Biden, that Biden is up 21 points in the fourth quarter and all they have to do is not throw interceptions. And so... They don't want to anger the Catholics. Right. A lot of Catholics in Wisconsin, a lot of Catholics in Michigan, a lot of Catholics in Pennsylvania and Ohio. They don't want to anger the women because she's a high profile woman. And so they're just going to kind of like pepper her with some like, we don't agree that you're here. (laughs) And like, we don't like that you have a, you seem to be bad with health care. That you heard that over and over. In fact, here's Kamala Harris jamming President Trump's nominee through the Senate uh, in order to strip away health care uh, protections under the Affordable Care Act. The Supreme Court. Uh, uh, no, sorry. That, that, that That's what she's going to do. Here is a more direct quote. Uh, these are not abstract issues. We'll be clear about how overturning the Affordable Care Act will impact the people that we all represent. So everything is based on this two tiered solution. You shouldn't be here. Not your fault. And the Affordable Care Act is the problem. And then, only then do they get from there to roe versus wade yeah it's a healthcare conversation well and they're they're keen on the open like that was in, in the
2: first and hopefully only presidential debate of this particular election oh, we're getting another one uh, out we're out, out one. the gate like they were like you know joe biden like like you know whatever the question was and then he immediately pivoted to obamacare right yeah. out the gate like the yeah. very first thing he did was swing the whole conversation to obamacare kamala harris is doing that that makes sense to me too because if you're playing for uh Middle American union, middle class voters in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Obamacare, probably reasonably popular. Uh, Roe versus Wade, a little bit more, a little bit more difficult to get into. Yeah. Uh, And and as you point out, like, yes, they they could stand to lose uh, a lot of goodwill from Democrats or Democratic leaning people if they go in and go like, well, she's crazy because she's Christian. Yeah. Which can can I just say? Yeah. Like uh, I, I find it abhorrent. For anybody that is reviewing a candidate based on their religion, yeah. and I say that twofold. One, if you're an actual judge that should sit on the Supreme Court, whether you're a Democrat or Republican nominee or, or some other world where an independent gets up there, you should your, your religion should not influence your ability to make a ruling because nobody up there should be going, uh, gosh, I wish the law was this, so I'm going to make it. You should yeah. always be saying the law is X. I disagree with it, but that's what the law is, right? But beyond that, I also find it crazy because, like, I'm a secular guy now. I'm an agnostic, so from my perspective, everybody in the Supreme Court believes in magic. So, like, what, yeah. like, so they're like, well, this magic's acceptable. This magic is kind of like a sedate Catholicism where we kind ca- we believe in the virgin birth, but we don't talk about it that much. Whereas that magic's crazy magic, and I'm like, you all believe in magic, yeah, like, just like like we just we, we have to come up with a system where like
0: that's not considered a rubric. Yeah. I, I, I just, the, the thing that's crazy to me is that I've seen the same playbook run my entire life. And now it's like, it's just, it's not like like, the court is going to tip. The court's going to tip in favor of, of Republican nominees. This has been the reason to go vote forever. Like, like and and now it's not, and I feel like I'm just I'm looking around. and normally, I'm the one that's always like, "Hey, look, here's the political strategy, here's what you want to do, blah blah, blah blah blah. And now all I get is people on this and then the court packing thing, which I want to ask you about, this idea uh, uh that that there's, uh, uh, you know the the uh, you know that, that that Biden is going to to put more people on the court, where my Democratic friends are like, good strategy good strategy. Good strategy. I'm like, no, I'm the one who usually golf claps good strategy. You guys are the ones that are like, no, this is our lifeblood. This is what we fought for. You're the true believers. You're the ones who, who follow the right path. It's like, I I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> uh
2: okay. So you're you're you're
0: agitated
2: that uh, I don't
0: know what I'm supposed to like I guess, I, I guess like now everybody just agrees that you should just Play naked politics. Yeah. No, I I think that's the answer
2: is that like the the court packing thing, uh, you know, like like, uh, Biden has been asked about this repeatedly. And I halfway agree with Biden where Biden's like, look, uh, like like Trump can derail the whole media cycle. I'm not going to play into his hands. And I'm like, I agree. However, you could just say I'm not going to pack the court and like it wouldn't be a media field day. Uh, And so my guess is that he's either not going to pack it but doesn't want to piss off the progressives who want to pack it or he's going to pack it but doesn't want to piss off the conservatives for packing the court. And the problem I have with this whole packing the court thing and I'm seeing all this heinous stuff come out like I it's one thing I I am all in favor of this. I'm all in favor if somebody goes, hey, maybe we shouldn't have the big decisions of our country done by locked in partisan appointees on a nine person panel like it, it, it there was like a tepid piece that existed yeah. when it was four conservatives four four democrats and anthony kennedy like that's a weird way to design a constitution yeah. there's like we should come up with something that's more equitable for everybody uh, i agree i agree let's do that i've got some ideas but i think what's going to happen if they do pack the courts is the system's rigged for republicans how do we rig it for us and I'm like, just quit rigging the damn system. This is why everybody yeah. hates you. Yeah. And and when you do that, you're gonna delegitimize the court. The only branch of government that is not summarily hated by the American people right now is the court system. Yeah. And if you if you start making it like not just a football, but a, like a Super Bowl, like then it's then it's out too. Then it's out. Like people are gonna be smoking in juries and things.
0: <laughs> uh, all right, one last I don't thing. believe in God, but I believe in the you sanctity believe of the, in court the court system. All right. One last thing. You just completed judge week on the political orphanage to uh, a big acclaim. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know anybody that didn't love it, including myself. Uh, for for those who did not hear it, uh, explain it real quick, because yeah. then, I, then I want to ask you about uh, Amy Coney Barrett.
2: Yeah. Uh, so uh, one of my bugaboos is there's not such a thing as conservative judges and progressive judges we use that as a shorthand but there's no such thing as conservative jurisprudence or progressive there jurisprudence.
0: there are appointees there are yeah pr- but there's but there's, yeah. there's there's
2: originalism and there's living constitutionalism there and, and unfortunately media coverage is so summarily awful of most uh most court appointments and jurisprudence that if, if you're if you're just looking on the outside you're going oh judges are super senators that are appointed to Put in their their party, uh, you know, forever uh, untouchable, and that's not the point of them. That's not what they're fighting about. The schools of thought between originalism and living constitutionalism aren't about if you want progressive policies or conservative policies. It's about how you interpret the Constitution. What what's what are the means by which we we look at this document when there's room for error when we're, when we're all not very confident it says something. Why do uh, why do originalists approach it differently than living constitutionalists? And so what I did was I had a whole week of bringing on legal scholars. I kicked it off with Judge Andrew Napolitano yep. who uh, who came in with natural law and talked about that. I brought in uh, David Strauss, who is a very well respected legal scholar from the University of Chicago to talk about living constitution, to the point that he
0: like kind of changed my mind on some stuff and made me think. And I thought yeah no it, it, the, the the great thing about it, having listened to all the interviews, is that you realize that there is a lot of room for argument about yeah. this and 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 for the the shorthand, originalist is this is the Constitution. We need to understand exactly what they meant at the time that they wrote it. Yeah. and that is the law. exactly. The closer we get to that, the better these decisions will be. the further we get from that, the worse it will be. right Living constitutionalism is all right, they wrote this then, but not everything is literal. So we have to adapt it somewhat. And the concept of originalism is kind of a fallacy because obviously not everything is apples to apples in our modern world. So you're doing living constitutionalism no matter what. And I was like, damn. yeah." I I mean, like, I, I would, I guess, I mean far be it for me to fancy myself a, a, a legal scholar, but like originalism always just seemed like, all right, look, that that's the rules. Uh, uh, we're all playing the game of life and the constitution is the rules at the bottom of the box. Like y- you got to break the ties based on those rules. I guess that that's what that is. But after, having listened to all the arguments, I found all of them very, very compelling. And then understanding that all these justices wind up Folding in elements of it, even if they're predominantly one way, throughout their entire career yeah
2: it's one of the very few instances in my adult life where i walked away going like you know there's actually some pretty high quality people on both sides of that like like yeah. most of politics for me is going a pox on both your houses and i i, I went away like i'm still very much opposed to judicial activism yeah. where you just go hey i wish this was the thing and i'm going to make it up and then retcon it I'm, i don't like that but but uh, very much so like the like the, the very quick uh, example that i think works really well for living constitutionalism is the constitution forbids cruel and unusual punishment. Well, like in, in 1789 or 1787, cruel and unusual punishment didn't include branding a horse thief on the face. Yeah. That was considered normal. Yeah. Whereas now, like we only do that in Kentucky. So like, <laughs> you know, like it's, and so it's a good example. So I'll, I'll, I'll throw it for people that, that want to go, that want to do a deep dive on jurisprudence, uh, and just understand what the actual lay of the land is beyond all of the largely grandstanding ephemeral arguments that are playing out in the hearings with yeah. Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, if you listen to Judge Week on the political orphanage, you will at least be irritated with media by the end of it or media coverage by the end of it because you'll know what's actually happening.
0: Yeah, there's very, very little in in the discussion about this. And even then, I'm like looking through the headlines of uh, today's recording. We're recording this on Tuesday uh, of, of today's hearings. And they're largely like, Amy Coney Barrett uh, dodges questions yes. on X, Y, and Z. God, and it's I like, it's hate like, hearings. Yeah. Number one, these hearings, effectively, all hearings on some level, but specifically the high profile ones, are effectively for me Instagram museums they're like when your friends go to the museum of ice cream so they can take a picture of themselves in the silhouette with all the sprinkles yeah. falling like that's what it is for politicians they literally might as well just turn around and take a selfie in front of the uh, the, the, the person that's there because it's just there for grandstanding
2: what, what, what I think that they should do is the, the, the American people absolutely have a right to know what happens in these hearings which is why I think by law transcripts should be available to everybody but yeah. I, I would I would turn off cameras, if we were up to me, I, actually what I would do is I would go, we're going to have the person that is being uh, subject to the hearing on camera so that the American people can see what they're like. Yep. And nobody asking questions gets to be on camera. We're just going to throw up a black screen with text that says what your thing is. And they'd all shut up because 90% of this is just grandstanding so that they can get their dumb line in the local newspaper. And they go, oh, man, Chris gave them
0: hell. He's the last true. They're all criminals except for our guy. Oh, I hate it. They should, they should all be, they should all wear the eyes wide shut masks and like have all of their voice garbled. So you have no idea where they're coming from. Although I do like the idea of like, no, 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 we're going to, you're going to question this Supreme court, this, this probable Supreme court nominee via Twitter. So, so you're you're going to have a uh, you're you you're gonna have a uh, uh <laughs> a, a a character limit on this. Well,
2: like, like on top of that, I mean, most of the people in the Senate are attorneys who yes. who know better. Yeah. They know what they're doing. So, like like some of the questions that that Amy Coney Barrett's being asked is like, will you recuse yourself on health care? Well, like, first of all, nobody should be up there if they need to recuse themselves of virtue. Like, I'm going to say, like, if if for some reason there was a Supreme Court trial where, like, your son is on trial for murder somehow, that's a situation where you're like, look, clearly I have such an emotional connection here. I'm going to have to recuse Anything barring that?
0: if, If indeed you find yourself in a bar riddle. Like where uh, uh, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't try this case. That is my son. It's right, like, oh, yes, the exactly. Supreme Court justice was a woman. You owe me a beer. <laughs> right. But, like, but, but, but that's such
2: few and far between. I can't, I, I don't know, there, there might be, I don't know if a single Supreme Court recusement—that's ever happened before. I mean, there's, there's got to be one, but I don't know of any. But like, so w- would you recuse yourself uh, on, on President Trump um, if, 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 uh, if confirmed? And there's like an Al-, Al Gore versus Bush. Well, no, you shouldn't because you shouldn't be up there unless you possess enough, enough objectivity about the law that you could handle ruling against the president that puts you in. And there's going to be, if he's elected for another four years, there's going to be things that his administration has proposed that are brought to the court. And any judge up there that should be up there should be able to say, no, that's not the law. So you, there, there should be no reason for specific policy indictments. And then with like Roe versus Wade as well, I, I'm out of my element here in terms of jurisprudence, but so much of it is just using buzzwords to frighten people. So like, uh, uh, Judge Barrett said she does not consider Roe versus Wade uh, supreme precedent and people are like oh so she doesn't even care and it's like supreme precedent is just Marlbury versus Madison. It just means judicial review the idea that the courts can strike down non constitutional laws. And like Brown versus Board of Education, there's literally no other. That, was the, one, that was the one that yeah. was used
0: today, where yeah. was that she referred to Brown versus Board as super president. Right. And,
2: but it, but it's being used like, oh, so you don't like it. And it's like, nope, that's not like like. But, yeah. but it's because most people want to interpret all of this stuff is a policy discussion of what do you want the law to be? Yeah, that's not the job of judges. And Amy Coney Barrett is consistently saying just that she's saying it's not my job to say whether I like this law or not. It doesn't matter whether I agree with it. I'm not going to go looking for laws to strike down. I'm only trying to interpret the law as it was written. And I'm like, that's what she should be doing. Like, I'm I'm increasingly, like, I, I was worried about her two years ago because not knowing anything. Yeah. All of the media coverage was like, oh, man, like, we better put in Gorsuch because this big, scary, like, Christian lady is going to, oh, man, she's going to, you know, take away all the gay stuff. And I was like, oh, I don't want that. Like, let's go with Gorsuch. Yeah. And now I'm like, okay, she's just like a Scalia, like, textualist. Like, she's not yeah. she's not swinging a hammer uh, against gay people. She's just, what what is the law? Is it, okay, it's not in there. Sorry, you don't get it. Pass, yeah. pass it through amendments or pass it through Congress. That's their job.
0: And that and that really, I mean, I, I think, despite the fact that Gorsuch took the Scalia seat, I think she will likely oh, yeah. be the the Scalia replacement because it yeah. doesn't even seem like like Kavanaugh is as. No, well, Clarence as-
2: Thomas swung in. To be like like what what Scali- Clarence Thomas hadn't spoken on the court in like thirty years yeah and then uh, and then Scalia died and Clarence Thomas like came in and became like the arch originalist yeah but he's he's like some kind of like Tywin Lannister <laughs> like like <laughs> hand, hand of the king character in terms of originalism yeah Amy Cody Barrett will absolutely be the heir apparent to Scalia to
0: Scalia in terms again in terms of textualism yeah. not necessarily whether or not they are personally. Conservative or liberal, and that was one of the things that I found uh, uh, fascinating about Judge Week, and I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to it, is that everybody on all sides of these arguments are like, yes, these are beyond uh, your personal beliefs, a judge's personal beliefs. Yes, it tends to be that conservatives tend to be originalists and liberals can tend to be living constitutionalists, but it's not a guarantee, and many times, in fact, 90% of cases, these are, are irrelevant. They, they yeah. wind up coming to the same conclusion I, I, anyway because not, the, the law is clear. Exactly.
2: 90% of the time, judges are actually going to agree on something because it's not like— Man, if 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 you agree with this statement that I'm about to say, please don't vote in this election. Like if if uh, not you, Justin, people no, listening. No, no, no. If, yeah. if like if if you agree that it's the job of a judge to look at a law and go, mm, that I don't think that should be around. Like that is just that's not what they're doing. And like and it, it really is that gray zone of uh, like let let's say theoretically. that the the Constitution said that you have to be mature to be president as opposed to 35. That's a kind of gray zone there where we now need to debate what does mature mean, right? And it doesn't say that, but if it did say that, where where there's some kind of term that's not really clearly triangulated, then we've got to figure out how we're going to interpret it how we're going to to do it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, well, hey, I feel like this was a good uh, a good little uh, uh, maiden voyage here into yeah. uh, uh, our our, our PX three side of this. Because can, wait,
2: can, can I add a little bit more? Just because oh, yeah, we yeah. talked about court, oh, court packing, I want to just put in some some data nuggets for people so they have yeah. got more when they get into bar fights. Yeah. On go Zoom. go go. Oh please. Um. So like a couple of a couple of friends have have reached out and been like, I can't believe that they would pack the courts. That's unconstitutional. I'm not for court packing, but it is constitutional uh, because the Constitution doesn't doesn't dictate how many people sit on the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court has it. it, it exists at the discretion, or the numbers to exist at the discretion of the Senate. The Senate, 100%, is in, in uh, is what what figures out how many people are on it. The President appoints. The Senate confirms. The vacancies are determined by the Senate, not by the Constitution. It's had as few as five justices at one point in our history. It's had as many as ten at one point in our history. We've had nine since I think 1867. Okay. Uh, and then we debated packing them in 1937 with or 1869. We debated packing it in 1937 under FDR. Um, so they could do that although I would say it's inadvisable because that would be so clearly a naked power grab. What I would suggest would be a more equitable way of handling this. Uh, I don't remember who came up with the, the policy proposal, but I like it, which is just every incoming president automatically gets to appoint a justice. So it could be that we have 14 at some point, but uh, if it goes below nine, they get to make up the difference. So like if, let's say we're at nine and, and Trump wins and we're at nine, when he loses or when he leaves office in four years and Kamala Harris runs and becomes president, she gets to appoint a 10th judge and so on and so forth. So, so wait a minute. always you a little get, bit of input. Do you
0: get one per term or one per president? I'd say per term. Per term. So yeah. you win two terms, you get two justices. Yeah.
2: And you'd probably have that many anyway because I'd say like if it goes below nine— you get to do it, but you know. I but I I think that like this is my main thing. Yeah. Rather than figuring out how do we rig this to get the decision we want, what I want to do is design a system where everybody looks at it and goes, "Yes, if I'm on the outside, that seems like a good system that I could live with." And I I would rather we go that direction. Yeah, and and term limits might be a part of it. It might be that like if you can't do it after eighty, or you can only do it for fourteen years.
0: I, I guess the one thing I would wonder there is if it really solves the problem that people seem to have now, which is I'm not getting what I want either electorally or legislatively. And that's the problem. Be it for Republicans with uh, upholding Obamacare yeah. or or liberals on, on various other different issues. That the problem is I'm not getting this and we have a legislature that can not find a problem that they won't ole onto somebody else, including each other.
2: Yes, I 100% agree. I, unfortunately, you can't like if Congress keeps demurring on its duties and, and punting to the courts to try and like play principle for the squabbling kids. Yeah. Uh, then it's not going to work. Like it's it's going to actually require having some semblance of a balance of power between three branches and Congress like having backbones. So that probably won't happen.
0: Well, that. that'll probably be, the, uh, yeah, not not uh, not in the offing. Yeah. All right. So now uh, uh, this is the fun part because you're here in Oakland and we're going to continue this conversation about another big issue that is facing our, our, our nation and the possibility, something that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have not to this point uh, talked about, and that is the idea of expanding the Senate uh-huh. and what the... The the, uh, the, 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 legislative,
2: uh, the legislative version of court packing, Senate packing. Senate packing. Yeah. So,
0: because Political Orphanage is a, a little bit more of the ideas show and we're more of the action show, we're going to take that idea over there. So make sure you subscribe to the Political Orphanage. This will be live there. Go back and listen to Judge Week. And a big, big, big recommendation to go and subscribe... To uh, the Political Orphanage Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/AndrewHeaton because uh, you're also going to get more stuff with me on it mm-hmm. there on the Patreon. So so make sure you go do that. Look at that synergy. Yep, we're we're literally about to conclude this conversation then start talking about DC and Puerto Rico. Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, we will see you over there on the Political Orphanage. ladies and gentlemen what you just heard was a direct result of the money that you have given to this program We got heating out here I made sure he was hooked up with a hotel when he's when he's here and and we, we kicked him a little extra money when he got robbed uh, uh, and that that comes from you that is literally the, the the cash that you have given to this program over the year we crossed an amazing milestone this week when I awoke, not knowing what on earth this year would bring us, and boy howdy was it a wild ride. And an ongoing one, I might add, before I jinx it. On January 1st, 2020, TakePoliticsSeriously.com brought you to a website with a counter. How many patrons we had? That counter read 600. This week, we doubled the sum bitch. Yup, 1200 patrons on this very program and and guys uh we just crossed 1100 like a week and a half ago your support for this show has been staggering and we want to continue to make it worth your while that's why on tuesday we gave you a co-production between politics 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 and the daily tech news show all about a california prop called prop 22 that may or may not shape the future of gig work across the country. You can listen to that explainer. It's the same kind of non-partisan, political, and when it comes to Daily Tech News Show, technical analysis that you've come to expect. Heaton's another example, and we're gonna give you more Heaton on the uh, bonus show, our Thursday bonus show. Uh, it's, It's a really great segment, we already recorded it, but I made Heaton watch the Kanye West Uh, a political ad and uh, we talked about evangelical politicians and and uh, where that could go anyhow you can get all that takepoliticsseriously.com if you're at that three dollar level that gets you that bonus podcast tomorrow you can do that until election day for six dollars i don't think that with tax you can get an ultra bonus combo at a fast food restaurant for $6. But you can get five podcasts a week until Election Day with that amount of money. Head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $6 total for five podcasts a week until Election Day. Our guest today is Lisa Sanchez. She's an assistant professor in the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona. Her research spans many specialities, including congressional politics, public policy, identity politics, state politics, political identity, and political participation. But we will be talking to her about the changing face of the Arizona Latino vote. Arizona, a, a very crucial swing state in the upcoming election Let's see what the trends bear for both candidates as we welcome Lisa to the program.
1: Welcome to the show, Lisa. I'm really pleased to be here.
0: Now, uh, uh, obviously, the battleground states are going to be what are focused on for not only our presidential election, but also specifically in the state that is your specialty, Arizona. We've got a very interesting Senate race. Uh, one of the demographics that will uh, that has been very much focused on over the last uh, six months or so is the Latino vote. And that will certainly come into play heavily in Arizona. So let's go ahead and and start from this point up until now. What are the recognizable voting patterns of the Latino demographic in Arizona?
1: So up until this point, uh, the Latino vote in Arizona is decidedly on the side of, of liberal uh, liberal ideology and somewhat demo- and Democrat, um, democratic voting patterns. Um, certainly uh, in this coming election, uh, Latinos in the state of Arizona have mentioned that in, in survey research that they are uh, voting to intend to vote overwhelmingly for Biden and Harris. Um, so something like 65% um, say that their, their planned or intended vote in 2020 will be for, for Biden and 18% say that they are voting for President Trump um, in the upcoming election. They also kind of suggest that they are excited and motivated to get out to the polls. Um, and that hasn't always been the case among Latinos. Uh, so we've seen with each successive election that Latinos are becoming more and more engaged with, with regular politics, with with voting in particular. Um, there had been uh, some low levels of of voter registration and voter turnout among Latinos for the last couple decades. And we're starting to see some shifts in that. We're starting to see those actually increase over time. And a lot of, a lot of research uh, suggests that this could be due to kind of the, the focus on Latinos uh, when it comes to anti-immigrant and anti-Latino rhetoric um, among uh, the presidential election, uh, presidential administration in the last couple of uh, years. So, what we're hoping to see is hoping to see a big turnout for Latinos in this coming election. Um, and many of them have said that they're gonna vote via mail. Um, so about 63% say they prefer to vote via mail, but in the state of Arizona, that's, that's not actually something that's very uh, uncommon. So across the board, most elections have a heavy mail and ballot um, uh, portion. So something like, I think the Secretary of State said that in 2018, 70, what was it? Seventy-eight percent of, of voters voted by mail for the midterm elections, and then the twenty twenty primaries, eighty-eight uh, percent voted by mail. Wow! So, and that you know, and
0: that and that really factored into that twenty eighteen race between Cinema and McSally, right? Because McSally was the winner yeah. on election night, and then that slowly eroded.
1: Exactly right. Yeah. So I mean, definitely, we know that the the, the mail in ballots and and certainly the. C- coupled with COVID-19, are definitely going to make it a longer election night, uh, probably an election week or an election, trying to figure out who's who's actually won these races. Uh,
0: l- let me actually take one step back here, because growing up in Florida politics, uh, you realize very, very quickly that what is sort of uh, blithely talked about as the Latino vote is very often many different kind of cultures, uh, uh, especially in Florida, where you have Caribbean uh, uh, nations and and Mexico and Central America and South America. Uh, when we talk about the Arizona Latino vote, where primarily uh, are we talking about culturally? I would assume it's Mexico and Central America, but I don't know for sure.
1: Yeah, so you'd be you'd be right on that. So um, you're absolutely right that the Latino vote is not a Latino vote. Um, it is a pan what we call a pan-ethnic identity. So it includes many countries of origin um, in in Florida, as you mentioned. Usually, the biggest piece of that that vote is Cuban. Um, that's one of the big three uh, that that is part of the Latino voting block. Um, but in the state of Arizona, it is primarily those from Mexico. Uh,
0: all right, so. You, you mentioned that 18% are looking to support uh, uh, President Trump. One thing that I have been watching, because it is one of those weird counterintuitive things, considering uh, uh, the rhetoric, uh, not only from the White House, but also just uh, uh, surrounding this race, is that there does seem to be an uptick specifically with Latino men uh, in support mm-hmm. for President Trump. Is that something that you have seen in Arizona?
1: Um, I haven't seen specific uh, data uh, on, you know, looking at males versus females in the Latino community. But I know kind of generally on a national scale, Latinas are, are different in a lot of really important ways um, in terms of participation. So they participate much less. Um, and they also tend to be slightly more liberal than their, their male counterparts. Over time, and, and you know, across across elections, um, than Latinos, uh, Latino men. Yeah. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me um, if if there is a small uptick among male uh, Latinos. Um, but there again, I haven't. I actually haven't seen data specifically on that issue in the state of Arizona.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things that's so weird. Again, because there is. Uh, yeah, I almost really wish that we just had a better name for for the. Latino vote and not only because of the pronoun element that has become more and more uh, 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 complex as years have gone on uh, but also because I mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's just kind of a misnomer and it doesn't really educate people we should just say like I mean if you're gonna group everything maybe like spanish-speaking demographic or something like that because it's it, it's not the same in in the way that other ethnic identities are at least in in my estimation.
1: Yeah, so, you know, this is a great point. We, I've talked about this a lot. I teach a class on Latino politics um, at the University of Arizona, and we talk a lot about the appropriateness of this pan-ethnic identity, of the use of Latino or Hispanic. Um, uh, certainly, Chicano was in vogue for a while in the 60s and 70s, uh, and, and, you know, the, the issue being well, this is what we would call a social construction. Social constructions are nothing more than something that has some basis in fact that we give a societal meaning to. Um, and therefore, we can fundamentally make Latino or Hispanic mean anything we want it to be. We can we can call it anything we want it to, to call it. Now, who has been instrumental in kind of creating the term Latino socially, you know, giving it meaning and giving it, um, allowing it to kind of take off, um, that would be you know, all kind of all parties. So the media certainly in the 80s had a big piece in, in creating this identity. So they, you always heard in the 80s, waking the sleeping giant. Now there were some pejorative pieces to that, obviously. Um, yeah. to call, it kind of has like a boogeyman aspect to it. Like it's it's sleeping and then it's gonna wake up. So I don't love that, but it was used a great deal during that time. Um, but so, the, so, you know, they had to figure out something to call this group of people who were Spanish speaking, as you point out and the census really was kind of the first in the the 60s and 70s they started putting um actually putting something on the census that asked what your spanish-speaking origin was um whether you were of spanish-speaking origin and they've gotten better over the years at kind of asking this question and and kind of figuring out what this group is and what to call it but they're kind of the first ones who called it spanish-speaking then they called it um hispanic and then they've added in the term Latino, and then they've added in sort of origin groups. So it really, I mean, the long story short on it is we can make it whatever we want it. Yeah. What is it right now? It's all of these countries grouped together, as you as you rightly point out, that speak Spanish and share sort of a cultural identity, low kind of socioeconomic status across, you know, across the United States. Socioeconomic status is simply a fancy way of saying that they have... Um, economic indicators that kind of put them lower on the economic scale. So things like lower occupation, um, lower income, definitely younger. Um, So things like that would would matter a great deal um, to socioeconomic status. And Latinos don't do very well when we measure them that way. Um, So all of these things help to group them and have and, and the bottom line is start to make them have similar interests, similar interests that make them a voting block.
0: Yeah, and yet there are many distinct voting blocks within that, right? Because uh, Mexicans don't yeah. vote like Cubans, don't who don't vote like Puerto Ricans. Like, you know, and and, and even, you know, the the, the line between Puerto Ricans and Cubans in Florida alone is fairly starkly (laughs) different. And those are two Caribbean islands that are not far from each other. So it's, it's very, very interesting uh, uh, to look at it, but let's, let's focus back on Arizona. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that night, that that uh, 2018 race with McSally and cinema. Uh, How did the uh, uh, Latino vote come in on that race when it, uh, it was all said and done?
1: So the Latino vote was was absolutely behind cinema in that race um, and instrumental in that was Maricopa County So when we talk Arizona politics, there's really two places to look Maricopa County and Pima County So Maricopa County has often, uh, you know, over time historically been the county that is is huge It's kind of unwieldy, right? It's a bunch of suburbs kind of, you know, together um but has has largely pulled towards sort of the Republican and conservative ideology when it comes to participation in voting. Um, Now Pima County on the other side, much smaller, still kind of a big portion of the voting block in Arizona, but obviously pulling slightly more to the the liberal liberal or Democrat side. So those two together are really where we watch. Um, Pima County kind of did what we thought it would do we it, you know, it, it kind of went for Kirsten Cinema, it went blue. Um, but Maricopa County surprised us a little bit because we saw an uptick in Latino vote. Um, and we also saw them vote for Kirsten Cinema in larger numbers um, and kind of break that historical record of usually supporting, you know, Republic, very Republican kind of candidates. So part of the reason that is is the, the landscape or demographics of Maricopa County have changed. Um in ooh, what years it twenty uh, seventeen or twenty can't remember if it's 2017 or 2018, but um, between that period, uh, Maricopa County was actually the fastest growing city in the, or county in the United States. Um, It added something like um, 81,000, 81,000 people. And a lot of those were kind of left-leaning. So you had an increase in Latinos in Maricopa County. Um, during that period, but you also had an increase of kind of urbanites and people from California who are kind of bringing their more liberal politics from California and settling within within Maricopa County. And so those two things together definitely were were pulling um, pulling Maricopa County to support Kirsten Cinema. And and, certainly-
0: and, and and just to be clear for folks who are are when, when you're talking about Maricopa County, that is what contains Phoenix and Scottsdale, right?
1: Phoenix, Scottsdale, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah, all so. that,
1: all that big conglomerate that um, yeah. we would usually just colloquially refer to as Phoenix.
0: Gotcha. And then uh, uh, I would assume that the other county would be the Tucson area.
1: Mm-hmm. Pima County is is pretty much most of Tucson. And then usually when we're even looking at statistics, it says uh, uh, about Arizona, we say Maricopa County, uh, Pima County. And then other rural. Um, that's how that's how much politics in Arizona is dominated by these by, two by counties.
0: these two counties. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and so, what led to that trend of McSally being up on election night, and then the the erosion to eventual overtaking of of cinema?
1: Well, certainly, uh, we we saw many people like i said who in arizona vote um on the we call it the pebble the permanent early uh voter list um and so in the state of arizona you can easily um you you put your name on this list and you always get your ballot sent to you it's it's like you're on a, a permanent absentee ballot list gotcha. and you can just send it in via mail and those ballots get counted afterwards and you know so it seems like that that in terms of who voted and when the people who voted early were cinema supporters and the people who voted on election day tended to be, um, uh, mixed voters. So that's why we L- see the shift.
0: Let's talk about kind of the, the direction of the Republican party of Arizona, because it's something that has a very, very rich history, not only with Barry Goldwater, but then John McCain who takes his seat Uh, At one time, Goldwater kind of thought to be this arch-conservative that's too extreme, and then as the decades move along, Goldwater's perspective becomes more of uh, the mainstream. McCain then becomes sort of a, uh, a, 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 you know, retains the independent streak, but probably has a little bit of a different worldview. It it seems Mm -hmm. to me specifically both with McSally and then the decision to go with McSally again, and the fact that she doesn't particularly strike me in in the same kind of mold as either Goldwater or, or McCain, that, that the Republican Party in Arizona seems to be without an identity.
1: Uh, yeah, at some level they, they are. I mean, I think I think what's going on in Arizona with the Republican Party is going on across the nation. There's somewhat of a schism uh, happening within the Republican Party. So you have kind of the old world elites like like John McCain. And I would add to that um, former former senator in Arizona, uh, Jeff Flake. Right. Both of these people were were political Republican elites who had more of a more of a 1990s. Uh, view of of what Republican politics was, yeah, um, or, or could be or is, um, depending on when we're looking at them, right? Um, less less sort of the influence of Trump, I guess, is what probably the shorthand. Yeah, it is was it
0: was you know kitchen table lower taxes, uh, uh, you know dabble in the culture war, but that's not the main thing. Just the country club exactly. Republican.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, um, and 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 honestly, also a difference in terms of how politics is, how political war is waged. I think that's also a huge difference between the McCain's and the flakes of the world um, in Arizona. They they really felt like politics was more of a, uh, you know, great minds can differ, right? Yes. You, we yeah. can we can have these big conversations without getting nasty. Recently, politics has become increasingly uncivil. I mean, the debate, did you catch the debate last night?
0: Yes, 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 indeed. Although this, this will air uh, uh, next week, but uh, uh, yes, no, this is uh,
1: uh,
0: uh, very, very much so. Yeah, that was, that was, um, that was loud.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that is what political warfare has become. Um, It's a mess. Although although I, I think that
0: Arizona and if we're going to model, you know, the two most famous names in McCain and Goldwater, both the times yeah. that they tried to take their brands national, they kind of shrunk from the conflict. They didn't like, either of them really liked the conflict. In 1964, Goldwater yep. certainly didn't. And in 2008, uh, McCain kind of, uh, uh, you know, he throws his Hail Mary with Palin, but past that, he yeah. just kind of took a knee.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he was even he was even so opposed to kind of this idea that you, you of, of the more personal attacks and the more um, extravagant personal attacks that I remember him during a debate, Presidential debate with McCain, he said, you know, somebody mentioned that maybe Obama was not a citizen or he was, you know, no, that was Muslim. a
0: rally. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a rally. Yeah, and, and, he, and, and he, and he, he took the mic from the old woman who said that uh he was a Muslim.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I remember him saying, no, sir. No, sir. He, he is an American and he's a good man. Yeah. I, I didn't see that on the stage last night. Oh, uh, no, no. That, that, no. Kind of, that, that politics has, has left the room, uh which is surprising because Biden has been in this game so long as well. So, You know, I mean, to get back on topic though, for you there, I mean, I think McSally has really thrown in her hat with with the new kind of version of the Republican Party, which right now at the helm is Trump. It's more of a an unabashed, more you know, in your face type of Republican Party, Um, and and it seems like Arizonans are actually kind of shying away from that. Um, Get think about Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is doing really well. Yeah. Um. right now so my, yeah
0: my, my question on that is when she loses in 2018 what makes you <laughs> think that you'd just load her up and run her again like like what what element of that race made the Republican Party think oh no that was a fluke
1: right I I mean I too I, I was talking to uh, an, another reporter um, with Bloomberg um, government and she was you know she and I were, were talking about the same thing it's it's kind of strange, you know, a lot of people say, well, why is McSally doing so poorly in this race? And, and my comment was, well, because she did poorly in her last race yeah. too. Um, so obviously there's something there that Arizonans are really not responding to. And some of it is probably, especially with Hispanics and Latinos, that immigration, the immigration stances are very, very um, related to Trump and they are very, very extreme. Um, so she has become really well known for that.
0: Uh, one element in, in the Latino vote, to get back to that for a second, uh, yeah. is that in, in general, and this does sort of uh, span a lot of the different national origins, is that uh, uh, Catholicism and, and a religious uh, upbringing is something that is common, and, and oftentimes if that's not a pull toward the more conservative side, it is at least something that they do find important. Uh, has the Republican Party just kind of lost the plot with with Latino voters in appealing to them on religious grounds?
1: I'm so happy you brought that up. Uh, I'm I'm actually writing a book with a colleague of mine on Latino Republicans in particular. And some of it is trying to kind of suss out what is it that, first of all, Latinos who are Republicans like about the Republican Party? What is it that draws them in? Um, And then the second piece is what could the Republican Party do that might actually draw in more Latinos? And, you know, obviously the, the, the easy money is on, well, let's look at the religious aspects. The problem with that for the Republican Party is that religious aspects haven't really been on the agenda in a big enough way in the last several elections. It's, it's less, the, the culture of war has moved on a little bit from that such that it's still there, right? It's still still kind of nested within things like healthcare. Um, But but at at the end of the day, it's really these bigger issues of the economy, of of, um, healthcare, of immigration, that kind of eclipse all these, what we would call latent conservative identities um, that may be underlying what a lot of Latinos have as an ideology but they're just not salient at the moment. They're not the things on the agenda. So when you, you, you're you hammering on immigration policy, well, you're not likely to bring up sort of these, these positive latent feelings that might actually match with the Republican Party. You're just like, okay, this is not a party for me. Um, as a Latino, I'm, I'm not welcome here. So you're not looking for any common ground. And I think that's, I mean, if Republicans really wanna start outreaching for Latinos, they need to start thinking about how they're gonna deal with that that,
0: that issue. Beyond, uh, religious issues, what other threads, uh, are you exploring in your new book?
1: Uh, so we're, we're trying, so we're trying to get away from this idea of Latinos is just Latino Republicans is just Cubans. So it simply yeah. is not true.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: there are, I mean, even in the state of Arizona, where we have a, a very heavy sort of Mexican American, um, population uh, of, of Latinos, I mean, you still see 18% are voting for Donald Trump. Um, so the question is, how do they kind of overcome these feelings of anti-immigrant rhetoric? Um, so we're really trying to look in, in uncommon places. Um, so thinking about, you know, Republicans in the state of, of Arizona who are Latinos, not just those Florida Republicans. Yeah. Other things we're trying to think through is um, what, what sort of psychologically allows these voters, to to hold kind of this idea that they're not that the Republican Party of Donald Trump who's who's sort of criminalizing Latinos and and calling them you know rape you know more racialized population how do they kind of get around the cognitive dissonance of thinking that that's not them um, that that he's talking about someone else so we want to do some sort of some 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 um, uh, Political psychology kind of studies to figure out how what is it about these people that allow them to 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 feel like this this is not me this is not me who is being um, called out and and again like I said in in Arizona it it is absolutely Latinos who are Mexican who are being called out and that's the you know the amount that's here we also want to look at some of the um, Latinos in New Mexico um, and in California. So um, like my family is a land grant family from the state of, of um, New Mexico, actually two sides of my family are. So uh, my my paternal grandmother, Elsie Sanchez um, was an Atrisco land grant um, recipient um, or heir is what we would call them. And, you know, been there since the 1500s. So one of the things we're exploring is how um, being in this country so long actually may make you more and more like um, other sort of non-Latino white um, Republicans um, and, and what that process might look like. Um, so we're, we're looking at, you know, as I say, we're trying to find some more interesting places to look at Latinos. And by the way, what we're, what we also are doing in that regard is trying to, to uh, survey enough Latino Republicans. So one of the problems that we see when we're doing this research is that you have, you know, there's, there's a smaller sample Uh, in the population of Republicans. The population of Latino Republicans is small. So when you go and you do a nationally representative sample, even if you oversample, pull more Latinos um, in non-jargony terms, um, to look at at Latinos, you still don't get very many Latino Republicans. So when you're making inference based on, you know, if we had a hundred person sample, which is is far too small, but just as as an example, we had a hundred person sample and the us population has 17% um, latinos in it. Well, that would be 17 latinos. Yeah. But then if we look at the idea that that latino republicans are about
0: 18% 15, of that, right?
1: 20. Yeah, so you're looking at two people to make, you know, inferences yeah. for the entire for population of latino republicans. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to we're going to put out a survey that just looks at at latino republicans.
0: Well, I am fascinated to see her research. Uh, uh, We will keep an eye on it. Uh, Lisa Sanchez, the uh, assistant professor at the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: And that'll wrap it up for us today. We have had such amazing support over the week. I am grinding for you folks. Grinded. it. Uh, hopefully uh, we have we have a few fun things popping up over the next few days. But a reminder that this happens largely because of the beautiful people that support us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, including those at the Titanic $10 tier, including Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, Dallas Danger, Taylor, your boy, Craig... Zombie. Gazerbeam. Utah. Jimmy Montana. Captain Bunzo. Cujo. Tally. Richard. Memory. By Ab. Crookie McCrookface. Justin. Ryan. Egan. D. Laser. Vote for Gloria Young. Matt, who called in to one of my live streams from both his wife's labor and delivery of their child, and yet his wife was so cool that she got him this shout out. I mean, that's couple goals right there. Vote for Joe Biden 2020, Evan, Rob. Vote for Trump 2020, Martin. Government unfiltered, Neil, Archie, Darren. Daily Tech News Show, Adam, Joe, David, Jacob, Olin, and Angela, DL, Stephen, Kyle, Jad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, Ball. The most conscientious, nonpartisan listeners. Glenn Wolf, brand Chili scoop, Dustin, David, just another pilot, Mike. That's middle-aged Mike. Jim, The Gen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen, Summer, Jay Pink, Andrew, Matthew, and James. Should you like to join their ranks? Well, it's just this simple. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. We will see how high we can climb by uh, election day one. And I want to do everything to earn it. I want to do everything that in my power to make you guys feel good about independent political analysis. Oh, my, my biscuits are burning about this Twitter thing, this New York Post story. Like, I'm not saying the story's great. I, I think the story has holes in it. But, like, ooh, we've had a lot of stories with holes in it. I mean... Besides Twitter, like pedantic journalism guy, that's me. Yipes, stripes. All right. That wraps it up for us today. A reminder you can follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. You can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Big mailbag coming up on Friday's episode. Get five episodes a week until election day for only $6, now including extra. Live in studio, Andrew Heaton. But till the next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this is the only show that talks about heroes. <laughs> <laughs>